Right, you guys can turn to the book of Genesis chapter 1. We'll start towards the end of chapter 1. Now, over the last few weeks, I have told a number of stories about the fact that I grew up as a pretty nerdy kid. I was uh, very much a nerd, but I don't think that you guys yet appreciate just how much of a nerd I was as a child. And so I'm going to show you a picture this morning. I'm going to show you a picture of what I looked like and what I was doing in eighth grade. Here's me in junior high in front of my wind tunnel at the science fair in the gym of my high school. Now, just so you understand, this is eighth grade. I'm, I'm in front of my wind tunnel. This was not my first science fair, nor was that my first wind tunnel. No, I, I had been doing this for years while other kids were out playing sports or having fun. I was in a workshop building wind tunnels and science fair projects and writing lab reports. And it wasn't because somebody made me do it. My dad was a really nice guy. It's because it's I wanted to do that. That's how I wanted to spend my time. Now, why? Why did I want to build wind tunnels and enter science fair? Well, I do like science. You probably have figured that out about me. I, I always have. I always will. I'm already scheming about how I'm going to buy land and build a workshop so I can make wind tunnels with my kids, even though they're only three, because, you know, really, how, how young do you have to be to have your first wind tunnel? You, you can begin at any time. And so um, I do love science. That's part of why I did this. But there's a bigger reason. There's a much deeper reason why I spent my evenings and my weekends building science fair projects. It's because I wanted to feel valuable. I wasn't good at sports. wasn't particularly attractive. I wasn't very popular. I was not good with the ladies. I actually got beat up by a girl in eighth grade in front of most of my classmates. So that wasn't going well for me. So I was looking for what can I do to prove my worth, to prove that I am significant and, and valuable. Well, science fair. I did it so that I could prove to the world that I was valuable, that my life mattered. Now, I'm pretty positive that all of you have felt that same desire at some point in your life. You have wanted to know that you matter. You've wanted to feel significant. You've wanted to feel valuable in the eyes of the world. You want to know that you are more than just a sack of organs taking up space on this planet. And so because of that universal need that we all have for significance, for, for meaning, for value, this morning we are going to tackle the question of significance. That's our question for this morning, this foundational question that we all at some point in our lives ask ourselves, do I matter? And if so, why? Do I have value? Am I significant? And, and if so, what is it that gives value and significance and meaning to my life? So that's the question that we're going to answer this morning. Now, as we have been walking through this series in Genesis, we've been contrasting the two primary worldviews that are available to us. You have the, the worldview of the Bible that says that the creator God exists, and you have the worldview of atheism that says, no, he doesn't. So before we look at how the Bible answers this question, let's ask ourselves, how, how would atheism, the other alternative, answer this question? Well, atheism, atheists do not believe that God exists. And so all that is, all of the universe, all of life, is the product of random chance and physical forces and blind evolutionary biology. So, so that's why you exist. So how would atheism answer the question, do you matter? Well, ultimately, no. There, there is no transcendent meaning to your life. There is no lasting sense of, of significance to you because you're just the product of random chance. So Bertrand Russell, famous philosopher and atheist, put it this way of man, his origin, his growth, his hopes and fears, his loves and his beliefs are but the outcome of accidental collocations of atoms. In other words, everything you are, everything you've ever thought, felt, said, or done, it is just the accidental product of collections and interactions of atoms. There's no meaning to it. There's no significance to your life. Or Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr., famous Supreme Court justice, brilliant legal mind, very hostile against religion, concluded, I see no reason for attributing to man a significance different in kind from that which belongs to a baboon or a grain of sand. 
So does your life matter? According to atheism, no, it, it doesn't. There is no meaning. There is no transcendent sense of significance to you. You really are just a sack of organs, no matter how much you want to convince yourself otherwise. That's why it should not surprise us to see our culture running after fame and money and sex. Because if there is no transcendent meaning to life, if there is no value to your life, then all there is is pleasure or the lack thereof. So let's get as much pleasure, as much happiness as we can, because at the end of the day, that's all that matters if there is no God. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die and you're nothing but food for worms. So the answer of atheism is really pretty depressing to this question. Do you matter? No, you don't, according to atheism. How does the Bible answer this question? Let's look at the alternative worldview. The Bible argues that there is a God, there is a creator. So how does, this, how does the Bible answer this question of significance? Do you matter, and if so, why? To answer that question, we have to go back to the beginning. We have to go back to the, to the origin of the human race. Where do we come from? Let's look at how God created humanity. Now, it's interesting. God led Moses to write the story of our creation twice. Moses writes about the origin of the human race two times, once in chapter one, once in chapter two. They're, they're parallel but distinct. They each say slightly different things. So let's look at these two accounts of our creation. Look with me in chapter one. Here's the first account of how God made us, of how God made humanity. Verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So this is the first account of your creation, of God making humanity. A couple things that that we want to notice here. First of all, it focuses on God's power. It's a big idea, God's power. Now, you, you don't catch this in English, but the word for God here in Hebrew is Elohim. It was the generic word for a great God, a God of incredible power. He is almighty. He is king of kings. That's the idea in chapter one. It's focused on God's power. Second thing to notice is this account is very short. It tells us about our creation just in summary form. It's actually poetic. Remember, poetry in Hebrew, uh, it was all about repetition. You see a lot of repetition here. This is a Hebrew poem about how God made you. It's a poem that just focuses on the most important details. And at the top of the list, what is the most important detail that Moses wants to get across to you? It's repeated. It is the image of God. You are made in the image of God. That is ultimately the Bible's answer to our question this morning. Do you matter? And if so, why? The key is the image of God in man. But to understand what that means, what is the image of God in us? We've got to now look at the second account of our creation. That's in chapter two. The the second story is different than the first. It tells of the same events, but it gives us uh, a different perspective on it. Before we read this account, just a couple things to let you know. First of all, in chapter two, we won't be focused on God's power per se. We'll be focused on God's love on his tender care for humanity. It's interesting, throughout chapter two, God is not known as Elohim. Throughout chapter two, he is Yahweh Elohim. Yahweh, that's the personal name of God. That's the name that people called him. Throughout the Old Testament, Yahweh is the God who loves, the God who is gracious, the God who is faithful. So chapter two is about this powerful God and how he tenderly cared for humanity. Second thing that'll stand out to us as we read chapter two is it gives us a lot more details. This isn't a poem. This is a simple historical narrative. It it fills in all the details for us about how God made humanity. So let's look at the details. I'll walk you through this as we read it. It begins with a summary in verse four. Look at verse four. 
This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and heaven. It's a a summary statement. Moses is about to tell us what became of God's creation when it reached its culmination. That begins in verses 5 through 7. In verses 5 through 7, Moses is going to tell us that, that in this creation, there are two problems, two deficiencies with the land that God has made. Look with me starting in verse 5. Now no shrub of the field was yet in the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted, for the Lord God had not sent rain upon the earth, and there was no man to cultivate the ground. So the land that God has made is barren. There's nothing growing there, because God hasn't given water, and God hasn't created a human being to cultivate it. So two problems that God begins to fix. In verse 6, he fixes the first one. But a mist used to rise from the earth and water the whole surface of the ground, so now God has provided water for the ground. First problem fixed. Now it's time to fix the second problem. Verse 7. Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living being. God creates this man to cultivate, to work the land, to care for what he has made. Now a few things to notice here in verse 7. God takes dust and he forms a body for Adam. Formed the same word of of a potter forming clay. So God creates a body for Adam but that body is not yet alive. It's not alive until God breathes into it. The breath of life turns Adam into a living being. Now just so you know God's breath of life that's not unique to human beings. That's not what makes us unique. Birds and animals also have the breath of life in them. In the ancient world, your breath was actually how they could tell that you were still alive. They didn't know anything about pulse or heartbeat. They would check your breath. They put their hand in front of you. If you're still breathing, then you are alive. That's how you tell a bird, an animal, or a human is alive. So God breathes into this, this formed body of dust, and Adam becomes a living, animate being. Okay, now, before we move on from God's creation of this man, of this cultivator to work the earth, we need to point out something, and we need to understand the implications of verse 7 to our understanding of human origins. We talked last week at great length about how there are a variety of acceptable views about how and when God made the world based on Genesis 1. A lot of different Christians take Genesis 1 differently, and that's okay. You, you, there's a lot of freedom in, in the how and the when. Um, but all of us within evangelicalism should be able to agree about how God did one particular thing, how he created us. All of us should be able to agree that, that there is a literal, historical Adam and Eve whom God specially created. Adam is not a myth. He is not metaphorical for the human race. He was made by God, specially on that day, back in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. We are not just an evolved form of a primate. We were specially created somehow by God on that day. And, And from that man, from Adam and from Eve, all of the human race originates. That's the clear witness of Genesis. It's actually also the clear witness of the New Testament. Paul will talk in both Romans 5 and 1 Timothy 2 about the historical Adam and Eve. If you don't have a historical Adam and Eve, then all of Paul's theology about sin and salvation falls apart. So so we have a real historical, literal Adam and Eve specially created by God. God has fixed the two problems. He's provided water, and now he's provided the man to cultivate. And so now, in the next part of the story, God creates a place for man to do his work. That's verses 8 through 15. The Lord God planted a garden to the east in Eden, and there he placed the man whom he had formed. Out of the ground, the Lord God caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon. It flows around the whole land of Havilah, where, the, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. The bedallium and the onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gahon. It flows through the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is Tigris. It flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. Now, we're going to talk a lot more about this garden in a few weeks. For now, what you want to focus on is what Moses is telling us is that God created a perfect, rich, lush place for Adam to live. 
Again, the focus is not so much on God's power, it's on his benevolence, his love. He provides for Adam. He provides all of Adam's needs. And so verse 16, you see God's abundant provision for Adam. Read verse 16. The Lord God commanded the man saying, from any tree of the garden you may eat freely. Every one of these trees, you can eat freely from them. God abundantly provides for Adam with one very small prohibition. Verse 17, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. Tree of the knowledge of good and evil and this prohibition, we're going to talk a lot more about that when we get to chapter 3 and and we see it again. For now the key is to see that God abundantly provides for Adam and gives a very small little prohibition. Every tree, just one left out. Okay, so that's the account. That's as far as we're going to go today, the second account of how God created humanity. Now that we've looked at these two accounts, now that we've studied what God did, let's get back to that key idea we saw in the first account, the image of God. Do you matter, and if so, why? The Bible says, yes, you do, and it's all about being made in the image of God. But what does that mean? What does it mean to be made in the image of God? Well, let's, let's talk about that phrase for a moment. Image, that word in Hebrew, selim, it, it almost always, throughout the Old Testament, it's a common word, it refers to something physical that represents something else. So it's used of statues and idols and paintings, something physical that represents something else. So when it says that you're made in the image of God, it means that you are physically, you are a physical being who represents God on earth. That's what it means to be made in the image of God, but Moses wants to make sure that we're clear about what this means, so he adds a second term. Did you notice that? Not just in the image of God, but also in the likeness of God. Those two words aren't identical. Actually, the second one limits the first. You see, this idea of being made in the image of God, it's not unique to the Bible. The Egyptians believed this idea of the image of God. They believed that it only applied to one guy, Pharaoh. He was made in the image of God. And so what did they do to Pharaoh? They worshipped him. They worshipped him as a god. Well, Moses will have none of that. And so Moses clarifies, yes, you are made in the image of God, but... It's only a likeness. You are not God yourself. You are not worthy of worship. You are not a substitute for God. So Moses clarifies, we are representations of God. We are not gods ourselves. We are not worthy of worship. So that's what the the words mean as we look at the data. But, But now let's ask the real question. Beyond just what these words mean, what does it really mean, theologically speaking, to be made in God's image? What's the significance of that? What does that matter to you to be made in God's image? Well, let me give you a a full theology of what it means to be made in God's image. Let me help you understand what that means about you. When we say that you were made in the image of God, we mean, first of all, that God designed you for relationship. God designed you to relate to him and to others, to him and to one another. God, as we've said often, the God of Christianity, is not like the God of Islam. God of Islam is, is alone. There's just him, just one guy. So he doesn't know love. He doesn't know relationships. Our God isn't like that. Our God is Trinity. Father, Son, and Spirit, eternally loving one another, eternally in relationship with one another. You see that relationship of God in the account that we read in chapter 1. Because what does God say? Let us Make man in our image. Those plural pronouns, they should stand out to us. Wow, what's, what's going on here? Well, God is revealing in mystery form. I don't think they fully got it yet, but he's revealing I'm, I'm more than one. I'm not alone here. It's not fully revealing the Trinity yet, but it's revealing there's plurality with, within the Godhead. And so what's interesting is to ask ourselves, why is it not until verse 26 of chapter one that God begins to talk in the plural? Did you see us and our? Well, the reason is it's not till verse 26 that God creates his first relational creature. Us, human beings. We're the first part of creation that was designed to have relationships. Animals can't do that. I know we love our dogs. We love our cats. They can have affinity. They can have instinctual desires for others, but, but they don't know love. They don't know true relationships. Only humans have that. 
Only humans have been designed to have relationship, love with God and with others. So that's why it's not surprising that God doesn't make one person at the beginning. Did you catch that? He doesn't create one person. He creates them, male and female, right from the very beginning. We are in relationship with one another. We were designed for relationship. That's why chapter two is, is all about relationship. It's about the relationship that Adam and Eve have with each other and with God. When God creates that beautiful garden of Eden, the reason that God made that really beautiful place wasn't just so that Adam had a pretty place to live. You actually find out in Genesis chapter three, this incredible verse, it tells us that God used to come down and literally walk with Adam in the garden in the cool of the day. How awesome is that? God took on some kind of physical form and would come to the garden and hang out with Adam. That's actually why the garden was made, so that mankind would have a place to walk with God. God designed humanity to live in relationship. You were designed for relationships. That's part of your DNA. It's part of how God designed you. It's what sets you apart. You were designed to relate to God and to one another. And so in John chapter one, we're told, as many as received him, that is Jesus, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe on his name. That's not true of a dog, not true of a cat, not true of a cow. They cannot be children of God because they weren't designed in his image, but you were. You were designed, you were created to be a child of God, to live in relationship with God for eternity. So, shouldn't surprise us when Jesus is asked, what is the greatest commandment of the law in Matthew 22? What is it? Greatest, most important commandment of all. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and what else? You shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's first, that's most important because that's what you were designed to do, to be in relationship. Relationships are core, they are fundamental to what it means to be human. You were designed to live forever in relationship with God and with one another. So that's the first part of the image. It means that in the image of God, we were designed to relate to God and to one another. Second part of the image, second part of this meaning of this idea, this concept of being made in the image of God is that we were designed to reflect God's glory. David talks about that. He wrote a commentary on Genesis 1, actually. It's called Psalm 8. He gave us a a comment on creation account, and he tells us, Psalm 8, starting in verse 3, when I consider your heavens and the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him and the son of man that you care for him, yet you've made him a little lower than God and you crown him with glory and majesty. So the image is getting at you were created to be crowned with God's glory and majesty. And as you study that theme throughout scripture, what, what we come to understand, what David meant is that you were designed intrinsically, inherently to reflect God's glory to the world. You were built to be a mirror. That's what David was saying. You were created to be a mirror reflecting God's glory, his majesty to the world. It's like the moon. You're not the sun. You cannot emit light. Moon can't emit light. All it can do is reflect the light of the sun. That's what God designed you to be, to look at God, receive his glory, and reflect it out to the rest of creation. So you were designed to reflect God's glory to the world in two ways, actually. The first one's going to surprise you. You were designed to reflect God's glory first, physically. Your physical body was actually designed to shine. I know that sounds crazy, but check out Exodus 34. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would take off the veil that he wore over his face until he came out. And whenever he came out and spoke to the sons of Israel what he had been commanded, the sons of Israel would see the face of Moses that the skin of Moses' face shone. The guy was like a light bulb, literally. He would go in before the Lord, and as a result, his whole body would shine, light, Now that was true of Moses, that will be true of all of us in the resurrection, Daniel chapter 12. Those who have insight 
will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven. And those who lead the many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. When God resurrects your body, when he restores it to what it was meant to be, you will shine like a star in the heavens. Because that's what your body was designed to do, to reflect God's glory, his majesty, his light to all of creation. So that's the first part of reflecting God's glory. Your body was designed to shine his glory. Second part of reflecting God's glory, you reflect his glory both physically and second, morally. Through your moral choices. That's why Jesus says in Matthew 5, 16, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Light here is is metaphorical for your good deeds, the, the choices that you make that are righteous. When you make righteous choices, it reflects God's glory to the world. They take notice. They see God's goodness in you, his holiness, his love. They see that in you and glorify him. So you were designed to reflect God's glory, not just physically, but also morally. That is actually why you have that strange little prohibition in chapter two, verse 17. I don't know if you ever thought about this. This is the kind of question that that keeps me up at night. Um, I used to wonder, okay, if God did not want Adam to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, why did he plant it in the middle of the garden? Why did he put it there? If you don't want him to eat it, then where should you put it? Like up on Mount Everest or on an island in the middle of the ocean or surround it with like 100 foot high walls? Don't give Adam the chance to blow it. So why did God put the tree right in the middle of the garden? Because God loves Adam and wanted Adam to be able to live as his image. It's actually a gift I don't know if you ever thought about that. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the middle of the garden. It was a gift to Adam and Eve because choice is a gift. It's grace. It's God allowing Adam and Eve to be fully human, to make a righteous choice because that's what we were designed to do, to make righteous choices that reflect God's glory to the world. If there was no tree in the middle of the garden that was forbidden, then Adam and Eve would be little different from a dog or a cat. They can't make moral choices doesn't matter what they do. There's nothing moral to it. God wanted Adam and Eve to get to be fully human, to fully reflect his image, his glory to the world. And so in grace, he put a tree, a choice, a test right in the middle of the garden. Because to be fully human means that you make moral choices like God makes moral choices. That's why the tree is there. God designed you to reflect his glory both physically and morally. That's one other thing that sets us completely apart from the animal kingdom. Now, third part of what it means to be made in the image of God. So you were designed to relate to God and one another. You were designed to reflect God's glory physically and morally. And third, you were designed to rule. To rule God's creation as his representatives. The fact that you were made in the image of God, that is what qualifies you to rule over the world on God's behalf. That's why in both accounts, chapter one and chapter two, you see a lot of of words, a lot of phrases about how we rule over creation. In chapter one, especially verse 28, God gives this command to to fill and to subdue the earth, the, the creation. Those are royal words. God in that verse is crowning Adam and Eve as king and queen of creation. They they were created to subjugate and rule over the world. They're not the king of kings. God is that, but they are his delegated kings. So, So you were created to be a king or queen ruling over creation, but God wants to make sure you understand what that authority is supposed to look like. I want you to understand, we're not allowed to be kings or queens who who take advantage, who extort creation for our own selfish gain. No, chapter two, you have the next set of words about how we're to rule over creation. God says in verse 15, Adam, you are to cultivate and keep it. Cultivate, that means uh, you can think about maximizing the fruitfulness of creation. You're to perfect creation, just like God perfects things. You're to do that, make it as good as it could possibly be. Keep, that means to protect or to guard creation. So you are a king, but just like God is king, you are to rule out of benevolence, out of love for creation. 
Now we're gonna talk a lot more about that in three weeks when we talk about Christian environmentalism, what it means to care for creation as followers of Christ. The key now is to see that God designed us to rule, to represent him on earth as kings and queens ruling over and caring for creation. So let's draw this together. When we say that we are designed in the image of God, what we mean is three things. Number one, we were designed to relate to God and to one another. Two, we're designed to reflect God's glory physically and morally. And third, we're designed to rule God's creation on God's behalf. But before we go any further with this, we have to ask ourselves how much of that applies to us. Because remember what happens in the next chapter. This is all clearly true of Adam and Eve in chapter two, but what happens in chapter three? Yeah, they blow it. They take that fruit from that one forbidden tree and they plunge the human race into sin and the curse falls upon us. So after the fall, after sin enters the picture, how much of this is lost? How much of it is still true for us today? We'll turn to chapter nine, Genesis nine. Many, many generations pass. After Adam, a guy named Noah comes along, there's a flood, and after the flood, God speaks to Noah, chapter nine, verse six. God says, whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed, for in the image of God he made man. What God is saying is even after the fall, even after the flood, even after rebellion and the curse, still we are made in the image of God. It is true of all of humanity, both believers and unbelievers alike. That's why murder is never okay. Murder is wrong for any person because all of us are made in the image of God. And so as you look at this idea of the image of God and how sin has impacted it, the big idea that you see throughout scripture is the effect of sin is the image was defaced, but it wasn't erased. It was not lost. You are still made in the image of God. So are unbelievers. So is every person on this planet still in the image of God, but, but that image has been damaged. All three parts of it have been damaged by sin. Your ability to relate to God and one another. Well, uh, you're not born into that. <laughs> you're not born relating well to God. You're born separated from God and in conflict with others. Uh, reflecting God's glory. Man, our bodies don't do that. Our bodies are broken. They get sick. They get old. They die. And morality, that, that's hard. We, we don't naturally reflect God's righteousness. We naturally want to sin. And ruling for God, well, we're kind of more likely to rule for ourselves. We'd really rather represent our kingdom than his kingdom. So all three parts of the image have been damaged, but it's still there. It has not been lost. It is still there within every human being because that is how God designed all of us. And so we should ask, okay, if that's, if that's present in every human being, how do we fix it? How do we heal it so that we're back to living out the image of God? Well, restoration of the image begins with reconciliation to the God in whose image we were made. You begin to fix the image of God in you by getting back to God, by becoming right with him through faith in the gospel, the good news of the gospel, that this God of power who made you in his image, even after you sinned, he didn't give up on you. He loves you so much that he sent his own son to take on our image, to take on our flesh, to live for us, to take our sin upon himself and die for us. And then God raised him from the dead and now he offers reconciliation, forgiveness, eternal life, healing to all who will simply believe it's a free gift. You don't have to earn any of that from God. It's a free gift to everyone who says, yes, God, I want to be right with you through faith in Jesus Christ. The moment that you believe the gospel, the moment that you are reconciled to God, he begins to fix all of this. That's actually the rest of your earthly life. I don't know if you've ever thought about your life this way. Your life is a construction project. From the moment you accept the gospel until the moment you die, you are under construction. And and what is that construction project? God's got his tools out and he's working on you to fix his image in you, to polish it up, to clean it up, to restore it. So he's restoring all three parts. He's growing you in your relationship with him. He's enabling you to love one another and grow in those relationships. He's fixing your moral abilities, giving you the desire and ability to obey him and and do righteous things. He's enabling you to, to begin to rule for him to begin to influence people for Jesus Christ and advance his kingdom on earth. 
So you are under construction today if you've trusted in the gospel. That's where it begins. You get reconciled to God and he begins a lifelong process of fixing his image in you. Now that's a lot of theology that we've covered this morning. A lot of pretty deep theology on the image of God. I want to now talk about application. What does this matter to you? A lot of complex theology. Whole books were written on this. I think more ink has been shed on this question of image of God and man than almost any other subject in Christianity. But who cares? What does it matter to you, to your daily life, to to our lives in this culture? That's what I want to talk about now. The meaning, the, the significance of the image of God. Why does it matter to us? I want to talk to you about this in, in a couple different ways. First of all, why should it should matter to us in our culture? In our society, how we engage the world and the issues of our day, what does the image of God, this theology, teach us? And then second, we're going to talk about how it applies to us individually. What should it say to me as a person, as an individual? So let's start with the cultural implications of this doctrine that we are made in the image of God. Implication number one to our culture is the image gives sanctity to all human life. 2,000 years ago in the Roman Empire, abortion and infanticide were both legal. The Romans didn't have any concept of the image of God and man. And so how do they assess your value? How did they determine whether you were worth keeping alive? Well, it was all about your capacities, what you could offer. And for them in Rome, primarily it meant your capacity to work and to contribute to society. So anyone who could not contribute to society was therefore not really human, not really valuable. So Abortion, of course, is, is legal. A fetus can't contribute any work. Um, but also infanticide. If, if you didn't abort your baby and your baby was born and your baby had a disability or a sickness or something was wrong with it that indicated that that child's not going to grow up into a member of society who can work hard and contribute, then not only were you allowed, but you were actually expected to suffocate your baby or put it out in a field to die. Because it can't contribute to society. So why would we keep it alive? So abortion, infanticide, actually even euthanasia were allowed in the Roman Empire. When did that change? When Christianity came in. Christians began to come into the Roman Empire and they behaved differently. Because they lived based on this foundational belief that all human beings are made in the image of God. And so therefore, they should be kept alive. They should be protected. So Christians certainly didn't practice abortion. But actually, even with infanticide, what the Christians would do is they would go out into the field where you left your disabled baby. And they would take that baby as their own. And they would raise it at great cost to themselves. And they would go take that disabled person that you don't care about, that you want to never see again. They would take and at great cost to themselves, bring that disabled person into their home. They would do the same with the terminally ill and the elderly. They would protect and care for any life, even life that the Roman Empire said was not valuable. And after a number of years, the Romans were shamed into admitting, man, that is a better way. This should not be okay what we're doing. What the image of God and mankind says is that all life is sacred. From the moment that that life becomes human, which if we look biblically, that's the moment of conception. When a new life begins, can that life at that point contribute to our society and do work? Absolutely not. Doesn't matter. Because from that moment on, it is a unique bearer of the image of God. That's why infanticide, always wrong. Euthanasia, always wrong. And abortion, other than to save the life of the mother, always wrong, biblically speaking. Because all life is made in the image of God. Sanctity of human life, that's what the image of God teaches us. Second cultural implication, the image of God teaches us equality. The image gives equality to all human life. It's interesting when you read chapter one, what is it in the account about the formation of those first humans that would have really stood out to Moses' audience? It's not that we were made in the image of God. They had heard that before. What stood out to them is to hear that the image of God was for all of us. That was crazy. Back in Egypt, who was the only guy made in the image of God? Pharaoh, the king. He was made in the image of God. We are not. That is why we serve him and do anything that he wants us to do. But but the Bible declares, no, image of God isn't just for kings. It's not just for the elite. It is for all human beings on an equal basis. You know, it's right there in chapter one. It is for male and female. Right from the very beginning of the Bible, sexism and chauvinism are forbidden. 
To look down on either gender is not just an affront against that gender, it's an affront against God, in whose image both genders have been made. So the image applies equally to both genders, and it applies to every race, because again, Adam and Eve were real historical people from whom the entire human race originated. So the image has propagated down to all races, to all ethnicities, to all nationalities. And so racism is, is absolutely forbidden by scripture. We, Julie and I watched the movie The Butler the other night, and it was painful. I don't know if you've seen it. It was painful to see the history of racism and segregation in our country. And as I was studying Genesis chapter one, what kept sticking out to me in this is a kind of a change of my perspective. Racism is not just a sin, in that case of that movie, against African-Americans. It is a sin against God himself because it is God himself who has given his image to every race on the planet. So any discrimination based on gender, uh, based on uh, race, ethnicity, nationality, income level, intelligence, any dis- it's all wrong. It's fascinating to look at the image of God. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but it is the ultimate justification for democracy. This is the reason for equality. All human beings, regardless of anything else, are made equally in the image of God. So we as followers of Christ should fight against anything that would argue otherwise. So, image of God, it means that all life is sacred and all life is equal. Now let's talk about the personal implications. What does this matter for you? For you today, what does it matter that you were made in the image of God? Two things, first of all, it means, number one, that you are valuable. That you matter. You are significant. Every person in this room, every person in the foyer, every person who hears this online, you matter to God. You are significant and valuable, not because of anything you do, not because of any contribution to society, but because God made you in his image. Now, that is not a message you will hear from society. Because who is it that gets to be on the cover of magazines in the checkout aisle at our grocery stores? Well, it's the beautiful and the talented, and the famous, and the wealthy. We live in a society that says, those people are the people who have real value. Those are the people who really matter. The Bible declares, no, that is a lie. Physical beauty, athletic talent, fame, money, that has nothing to do with your value as a human being. Because value is about the image of God. And it's in all of us, in equal measure, in every human being. It's not something we have to earn. It's not something anyone can ever take away from you. And so here's my challenge for you. When you hear a voice in your head telling you that you are not valuable or telling you that you are less significant, less important than someone else, you need to take that thought captive and recognize that is a lie straight from hell. Because God himself has said no You are infinitely valuable and will be for all eternity because I made you in my own image. You are infinitely valuable to God and always will be. That's the first thing to recognize here. Second thing to recognize as we study the image of God, if you want your life to work well, you need to live in line with how you were designed. It's actually true of anything that is designed. Whether it's your car, your smartphone, your computer, your house, if you want it to work well, you have to use it as it was designed to be used. Well, so with human life. If you want your life to work well, if you want to have joy and peace and love and feel significant and and enjoy, you have to live in line with how you were designed. You have to live in line with how God designed you to live. And fortunately, that's what the image teaches us. It tells us God's blueprint for a human being. This is how you were designed to live. If you want to live a satisfying life, live in line with the image of God. And so I would challenge each of you this week, take a little bit of time and prayerfully go before the Lord and ask yourself, how am I doing in each of the three areas of the image of God? Relationship. How am I doing in my relationship with God? Is it my priority? Am I giving good time to God's word and and, and to prayer and to worship? Or is that getting pushed out? Life will only be good if you are living in relationship with God and with others. Are you loving others well? Second, reflecting God's glory. Your body can't do that yet. 
not going to be fixed till resurrection, but you, your moral choices can. So how are you doing? Are you reflecting God's love and his righteousness, his holiness to the world, or do you look just like the rest of the world? Is there some part of your character where you are not living out God's righteousness, some area that needs to be worked on? And finally, ruling. Are you living life as God's representative on earth? Are you living as a king or queen who who is expanding his kingdom, who is serving his interests? Are you influencing people for Jesus? That's ultimately all that leadership is, influence. Are, Are you influencing them to know Jesus and walk with him? Are you using your money and your time and your talents to serve the kingdom of God rather than your own ends? Look at each of those areas of your life, how you relate to God and others, how you reflect his glory with your moral choices, and how you rule on his behalf. Ask God to work in your life and fix you and grow you so that more and more of his image is revealed through you. That's how life works well. I'm gonna close us in prayer. Afterwards, if you'll stay seated for a moment, I'll tell you where we're headed in the next few weeks. Heavenly Father, we come before you and we thank you that you are a God of love and power and grace. We thank you that you made us in your image, that that's what makes us special. It's not something we have to earn. It's not something we have to merit. It is something you have given us freely from the moment of conception on. We are your image bearers. Thank you that you have given our lives value and significance. And Father, I pray for any person in this room who is weighed down by by the lie that for some reason they don't matter, that for some reason they aren't as significant or aren't as important as other people. Lord, free them from that lie. Help them to know and to believe that they are infinitely valued by you and will always be. I pray, Father, that we would live out your image I pray that you would work in us. I pray that your spirit would transform us and grow us so that we would shine your glory to this world, that our lives would be righteous, that we would spend good time with you, that we would love you and love one another, and that we would represent you well, influencing people for your son, Jesus Christ. I pray, Father, grow the image in us. Fix it, restore it, so that we might glorify you on earth. And thank you most of all, Lord, for your son, Jesus who died for our sins so that we could be healed, so that we could be reconciled to you, so that we could have hope in the future. We pray that he would be glorified through our lives. In his name we pray, amen. All right, just a couple heads up about where we're headed the next three weeks because we're going to be playing switcheroo between the campuses. So this would not be a good time to go check out Anderson because we're going to be mixing it up a little bit. Next week, Brian is over here. He's going to flesh out the beginning of chapter two and talk about a doctrine of work and rest. Matt Morton will be over on the next week fleshing out the end of chapter two on marriage and sexuality. And then I will come back in three weeks and give you a Christian ethic of creation care of environmentalism. So that's where we're headed, covering a lot of ground. Again, you can get all of this on Twitter or on our app or website. Again, parents, alumni, love to see you guys at the free lunch that'll be starting in just a few minutes. God bless you guys. See you in a few weeks. Thanks for joining us. I'm Matt Morton. I'm here with Brian Fisher and Blake Jennings, and we are going to talk about the sermon from September 15th on the image of God from Genesis 1 and 2. Uh, Great messages yesterday, and uh, one of the things that came up consistently in both of your talks was uh, this idea of the image of God, what it means to be made in God's image, is not tied to our capacity, what we can do, how well we can think, how fast we can run. And I was intrigued, Brian, in particular, in your message, you mentioned that our capacities kind of peak between 18 and 22. Uh, I was sorry to hear that. I didn't necessarily think I was well past my prime. But one of the things Blake and I were thinking about earlier is just maybe you could give us some perspective. What should we expect as we approach old age and elderliness since you're kind of a few years further? Matt, actually, you know, looking at the two of you today, I would say you already know what to expect. (laughs) Well, all right. We will uh, move on from there. Um, You know, along those same lines, when we talk about the image of God again, we see it's not related to our capacity directly. So those who are smarter 
or not as smart, those who are stronger, not as strong, aren't necessarily more or less in the image of God. But as you look at the book of Genesis and the Bible as a whole, then what does that say about how we're called to treat one another as human beings? Brian, how would you address that? Matt, let me start by connecting it to the narrative of Genesis. In chapter 4, Cain defensively asks God a question, am I my brother's keeper? And it seems that Cain assumes the answer is no, I have no responsibility for my brother. But God views it very differently. Uh, in fact, he communicates to Cain, you, you are your brother's keeper. You are responsible for your brother as well because you are in, in the image of God and your brother is in the image of God. So because you are in the image of God, you're designed to reflect the character of God and God is compassionate and kind and sacrificial and giving. Because your brother is in the image of God, you need to show him respect and honor as someone made in the image of God. So, in a sense, the image of God in ourselves and in others needs to govern the way that we relate to one another. Interesting verse in James, chapter 3, where James says, With our tongue we bless our Lord and Father, and then we turn around and we curse men who've been made in the image of God. James says that is completely out of whack, that is out of line. We need to treat others consistently, in a sense, with how we view God because they are in the image of God. Okay, yeah, and that brother's keeper concept is uh, incredible. I'm sure parents everywhere are trying to backtrack and get that passage written down to talk to their kiddos about. So, yeah. Well, quite honestly, Matt, sometimes that's one of the things I address with my own kids when they're not treating one another well is I, I... Say, what's the basis? On what basis should you treat your sister kindly or treat your brother kindly? It's simply because they're made in the image of God. By the way, it doesn't really work very well as a parenting. But But it's a good concept. Because I've got to bring a little theology into the house, right? That's right. Well, so if the basis of how we treat one another then is rooted in this image of God, Blake, give us some examples uh, practically on a social, cultural level. How does this play out? If I'm thinking, all right, you're made in the image of God, that affects how I treat you. Uh, What does that look like when we talk about some of the big issues facing our culture? Right. I think that as we look at the theology of the image of God, it shapes how we treat individuals. And let let me clarify this by contrasting it to the other dominant worldview, which you've mentioned. Uh, What if we view people based on their capacities? So in most of the big debates of our day about who deserves the right to life and who does not, uh, it comes down to an issue of capacities. How do you define capacities? So a fetus who is 18 weeks old doesn't yet have the capacity to feel pain, so that fetus is not protected in some states. A fetus that is 26 weeks old does have the capacity to feel pain, so it is protected. So right to life comes down to capacities if you don't have a theology of the image of God. That's very problematic for society. So let me give you an example. Peter Singer is a brilliant Princeton philosopher who's not a Christian. He takes this train of thought to its logical conclusion. If you define life based on capacities, for him, the key capacity is whether you have the ability to form a preference that you want to stay alive. So if a person does not have a preference that he or she wants to stay alive, then he or she does not have a right to life. Well, fetus clearly doesn't yet have a, a shaped preference about whether it would like to stay alive or not. It doesn't have that capacity to reason that out. But Singer is a smart guy. He recognizes not only does a fetus not have that, neither does a newborn baby have that. An infant doesn't have any capacity to choose life, to choose to want to stay alive. That's why Singer, to quote him in his own words, says killing a newborn baby is never equivalent to killing a person. That is a being who wants to go on living. He's just taking this capacities idea to its logical conclusion. Infant doesn't have a preference for life, so it's okay to, to bring an infant to, uh, to kill an infant. It's not the same as killing a person. That same train of thought could be applied to those who are old or to those who suffer from severe dementia or Alzheimer's. That's why in a lot of these arguments, euthanasia becomes permissible. Very quickly, when a society loses the image of God and defines life based on capacities, it begins very quickly to shrink the circle of protection. So more and more people begin to fall outside of that circle. So you you look at the Roman Empire, for example, 2,000 years ago, the circle became very small. 
infants didn't have a right to life. The very elderly didn't have a right to life. Those who were of a different race did not have a right to life. They weren't even viewed as necessarily human. That's why you had gladiatorial contests where people would actually die. And it was entertainment because those aren't valuable people. Slaves, you could kill slaves because they didn't have the same value as us. So when you begin to define uh, the, the value of human life based on capacities, then that circle shrinks down further and further and further. In, in the public square, the discussion centers around human rights. Right, so let's use the vocabulary of the public square, human rights. How do we define what is human? If we go all the way back into the, the culture of Moses' day in the ancient Near East, the king was the only one who was in the image of God. And so the king had uh, boundless rights, so to speak. He, he was the ultimate form of human, a man in the image of God. Uh, free people were uh, a shadow of the God, so they had some rights, so to speak. But slaves were a shadow of a man. So slaves had absolutely no rights. They were not human. We, we see s- similar philosophies and thinking working, as Blake said, all the way through the Roman days into our current days. We're discussing human rights. N- no one necessarily would argue uh, the fetus is not life or alive in some sense. But what they would say is it's not human yet. Consequently, it doesn't have human rights because humanity is defined by capacities. So there are enormous social implications, sure, for uh, abortion, for uh, euthanasia. Um, I think there are social implications of the image of God as well on the issue of racism. Ultimately, the only solution for racism in our country or throughout the world is a return to seeing people in the image of God. Okay, so my question for you guys then, somebody may be listening and say, you know, you don't really need the image of God, though, to treat people well. In other words, I just I treat people the way I want to be treated. If I treat you poorly today, you might come back or your group might come back and treat me poorly tomorrow. Isn't that a sufficient basis for treating others well, apart from having to have this construct of God's image? Someone says that, what do you, how do you answer that question? Matt, what we're looking at is on a cultural basis, we have to create uh, protections. So you and your friends work out an agreement in a sense that you're going to treat one another the way that you want to be treated. But then how do outsiders treat you who have utterly and absolutely no respect for you? They don't care how you treat them back. They don't share that value. On a broader cultural level, if we are not seeing people in the image of God, then we're going to see uh, great inconsistencies in the way that we treat one another. Yeah, what you're talking about it sounds like utilitarian ethics. So my ethics, my morality is based on simple utility, what you can offer me. I want to make sure that I don't do something to you that you would do back to me. Those work in a lot of cases, but they don't work when you hold all the cards. When you are the one in absolute power, then uh, there is no reason for you to treat other people well. The beauty of the image of God is that shapes theology and behavior for everyone in the world, from the poorest of the poor to the richest of the rich. It equalizes everyone and puts them on the same basis because it's not about utility. It's not about what you could do to me or what I could do for you. It's about the fact that all of us are made in the image of God. So, so ultimately, this philosophical and legal construct, what it does is it protects the vulnerable. Mm-hmm. The, the powerful don't need protection. The vulnerable do. That's why you see so much discussion in the Bible about God's attitude toward the vulnerable. Let me give you an illustration as regards uh, poverty. In the book of Proverbs, it says, he who oppresses the poor taunts his, his maker. He who mocks the poor taunts his maker. The rich and the poor have a common bond. The Lord is the maker of them all. This is what I think really forms the background for James' discussion of how we treat the poor. Treat the poor as made in the image of God. The rich have, have power. The vulnerable must be protected. And we reveal how deeply we understand the image of God in ourselves and others based upon we, how we treat those who are vulnerable or marginalized in a society. Wonderful. Yeah. So this image of God shapes how we treat everybody on an individual level, but ultimately it's going to have an impact on how we view broad societal issues, uh, poverty, politics, all of those 
sort of issues. So as we are closing up our time, maybe each of you in a nutshell, if you say, um, how can I move through my day with an awareness of the image of God practically and treat others as made in the image of God? What's just one short piece of advice you'd give somebody? I would say one of the things that's been convicting to me from this passage is am I walking through life, am I walking through my day, recognizing every person I see as a bearer of the image of God, as my brother or sister, or am I seeing them as the world does? So, uh, frankly, if I don't check myself, if I'm not thinking about this, then I'm, I'm more likely to notice the athlete, the doctor, the lawyer, the person whose society lifts up. I'm less likely to see the poor person, the homeless person, or the person who uh, is is doing menial labor, whatever it might be. And, and that's wrong. It, it may not be called racism, but it's just as wrong. And so... For me, one of the ch- things I'm challenging myself to do is as I walk through my day, every person I see recognize that is a bearer of the image of God. There's nothing mundane about that person. They are infinitely valuable to God. Yeah, Matt, I put it in really simple terms for myself. I, I like to look people in the eye. So particularly the people who I, I might be in a, a position where I have more, more power in the relationship, so to speak. Uh, I want to look them in the eye, speak to them directly, and treat them with honor and dignity. Those who have nothing to give to me, I want to treat them with honor and dignity. You think about how we often respond when we see that homeless person or the person who's sitting there and begging, no matter what circumstances put that person there, even if it was their own personal choice that put them there, we avert our eyes. (laughs) We choose to pass by and not look rather than perhaps we have no money in our pockets at that moment and we can't actually help them, we can still look that person in the eye and say, I'm sorry, but I can't help you today. But we acknowledge them uh, as as men and women made in the image of God. Uh, if I can, I'd, I'd love to uh, wrap us today with uh, this passage in Psalm 8. As it's just this, it's a beautiful reflection on um, Genesis chapters 1 and 2. David wrote, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have ordained, that's Genesis one, what is man that you take thought of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than God and you crown him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the works of your hands. You put all things under his feet. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Thank you. And uh, just a reminder to those listening for all of these resources, for the sermons, notes, questions following up from the sermon, you can find that at grace-bible.org or download our app, Grace Bible Texas, from your app store. Have a wonderful week. 